Isaiah chapter 32. This is an interesting passage because while it's written specifically to Israel, uh, it has great application for us as a church. And we've got to kind of dive into it and, and see what that is. But God's truth is timeless. And the spiritual principles that he teaches uh, to Israel here are just as relevant to us in 2016. And we have the advantage that they didn't have, although they had some perspective on this, we have the advantage of being able to see their decisions and see how God worked and learn from that. The mistakes they made, the things they did right, God's graciousness, God's leading, God's work, God's warnings. So we have the perspective later on, thousands of years later, of being able to see how God works, see what God expects, and know how to live. Now, one of the things that we learn from Israel uh, as we study them is that uh, Israel really um, did not do very well, and that's kind of an understatement. They constantly and consistently lived on the outside of God's ideal. Now, let that sentence just settle in for a minute. Israel constantly and consistently lived on the outside of God's ideal. Now, they had every advantage that you could ever possibly hope for. They had God's unique plan and promises that God had established them as a nation and said he would be their God and he would lead them. They had a clear picture of salvation through the sacrifices. They understood sacrifice and the shedding of blood and atonement and payment for sins. They understood all that. They saw him lead them often in, in very miraculous ways that, that proved his authority and proved his power and proved his help. They had his manifest presence, sometimes literally being able to see the presence of God, whether it was in the cloud by day, the fire by night, or his presence indwelling the tabernacle. They understood the presence of God. They, they tangibly saw it. They had a definitive law. God made it very clear what his expectations were. And, and he constantly encouraged them, and he constantly warned them by his prophets. So Israel could never claim at any point, we lack, God, we don't have enough information. We don't know uh, what to think or how to act or how to live or what you expect from us or, or how to trust you or why we should trust you. There, there was never a time in their history where they were lacking or uncertain in any way. So when they stray spiritually, it's intentional. When they turn against the Lord, it's intentional. And any time that happened, God would either send a messenger to warn them, or he would send an opposing ar army to punish them and to get them back on track. To the extent that the patterns are so repetitive, especially if you look through uh, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, the, the patterns are so repetitive that just by the patterns alone, they could have learned what to do. But God was definitively clear. God, God showed them everything that they needed to do. And yet, over and over again, they rejected him. Over and over again, they worshipped idols and turned from him and, and failed to trust him and ignored the leaders and the prophets and, and everything else. They, they chose to live however they wanted to live because they didn't want to follow God. Now, beyond the obvious discipline that God brought at that point, Israel is is a huge example, and I don't know how to state this properly, so let me just say it this way. Israel is a huge example of missing out on what God wants to do. 
God has plans for each of us. God has a unique design for each of our lives. God wants to work in powerful ways in our lives. Are we realizing that and are we living in the middle of that or are we missing out? Because God had unique plans for Israel. He still does. You know, God hasn't given up on Israel, even though the rest of the world, including, I think, the United States at this point, has given up on Israel. And yet, with all the nations that want to do harm to Israel and all the nations that want to nuke Israel off the face of the earth and denounce them and and won't help them economically, isn't it amazing that that little tiny nation, I think it's about the size of New Jersey, You know how small that is? That little tiny nation is at the epicenter of world history and nobody can touch them. Why is that? It's because God still has a plan for Israel. We look at the book of Revelation after the church goes to heaven. We see that God then turns his attention back to Israel. And while he's punishing the earth and disciplining Israel, he's also going to restore Israel because God never took his hand off them. But Israel never appreciated that. In the same manner, God has unique plans for you and me. And rather than lacking in power, and rather than lacking in peace, and rather than living in spiritual anemia and struggle and hardship and difficulty like Israel constantly seems to, we can live in the grace of God because the Lord is so gracious and the Lord is so generous and it's far beyond what we could ever imagine. Just think about the words that we just sang. We take them for granted, right? Because we're so used to them and we've sung those songs before and and we talk about the grace and the mercy of God and that he's above all things. And and, and I don't mean this critically. We, We kind of just sing them, but maybe we don't feel them as deeply as we should. But think about the generosity of God that he would be willing to rescue us from sin. Think about the graciousness of God that rather than making us pay the price, that he would send his own son to take all of our sin upon himself and be sacrificed and brutalized and tortured and put to death by the very people that had created in his own image. God's graciousness and his God's mercy is so wide and he's willing to help us and bless us And bring us to a place of joy. So are we experiencing that? If we don't experience it, it's not because God's insufficient. And not because God is stingy. It's because we're living outside of his ideal. And that's what happened with Israel. And we're going to see this in a moment. Actually, keep your your finger here just for a moment in Isaiah 32. And turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. I didn't plan on turning here. But I want us to read this and see this. Because these are great verses. God's word is so clear, and and here in his word in 2 Peter chapter 1, he tells us what he wants to do and what he's already done for us. And if you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, and I hope every single person does, but if you haven't, today is the day to understand the mercy of God. But I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. We've read these verses and studied these verses before, but, but let's read them again because they are incredibly powerful. Seeing that, verse 3, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world 
by lust. Now, just stay there for a second and look at those verses. We could speak and study for weeks and weeks and weeks and not even scratch the surface of what this is talking about. But, but just pull two truths out of this because they're going to be the foundation for what we're going to look at in a moment in Isaiah chapter 32. There, there are two statements that need to stand out. One is in verse 3. His power, God's power, has equipped us with all that we need. Everybody say the word, all we need. All we need. Not, there's no lack, there's no insufficiency, there's no, well, we could use more. God's power has supplied us, tell me again, all we need, all we need to be holy in every aspect of our lives. God's power has given us all we need to be holy in every aspect of our lives. The second truth is, we have received, this is in verse 4, we have received His divine nature. When we trust Christ and God saves us, He changes our nature and takes us at the old nature, which is marked and polluted by sin, and gives us a new nature, which is marked and engraved with righteousness. So Peter says, we've received his divine nature, so we not only should be reproductions of Christ as we live, but God, as a result of this, also gives us the abundance of his blessing. As if it wasn't enough to be forgiven, as if it wasn't enough to be given a new nature, as if it wasn't enough to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, so we'll walk in that new nature. God says, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to bless you beyond what you can comprehend. I'm going to work in your life and bless you and give you power and peace and contentment and spiritual self-discipline that can be yours, so do you have it. Now, let's stop right there and assess. Because when we look at verse 3, look back at it, and when we look at verse 4, and we see those two truths, that His power has equipped us for all we need to be holy, and that we've received His divine nature. We have to ask ourselves, and I've got to ask this, do those two truths describe you? If the answer is no, then the first question has to be, have I truly renounced my sin and trusted in Christ as my Savior? Not just a prayer we prayed at some point where we kind of thought, well, that's good, I'm covered, and, and, and I'm good to go, but, but there's been no spiritual change. But a genuine trust, a genuine salvation, which has produced a life change. If, if, that, if you haven't experienced that, and, and you may have been in church 20 years, but you've, you've honestly, when you sit there, you say, I can't genuinely say that my life has changed and that I'm a different person because of salvation, then I would say you need to trust in Christ today. And I'd love to talk to you after the service. Our leaders would love to talk to you. Prayer band would love to talk to you after the service and, and tell you and show you what it means to give your life to Jesus Christ. Because when we give our lives to Christ, there is a life change. Now, if you're sure you've trusted Christ, then it leads to a second question. Is my life fully surrendered to him? 
A, am I saved? B, am I surrendered? Or do I operate more like Israel? I kind of trust when it's easy, and I obey when it's convenient, and I follow him uh, when, when I feel like it, and when it's good for me, and when I feel like uh, that I'm going to be satisfied. If that's the reality, if, if you're saved, but you're not surrendered, and I think a lot of people live in that place, hopefully none of us, but let's, let's be honest, some of us may. If you're saved, you've trusted Christ, you've been saved, you know what it means to be changed, but, but you're not surrendered, you're still holding back, then the next step is to immediately go to the Lord and ask Him to cleanse you and change your heart and restore the joy of your salvation. Because at some point, you committed your life and you said, that's it, I'm done with the old self, I want to be redeemed, I want to be saved, I want to be changed. And maybe like I did, you did like I did when I was nine and I went forward and I was bawling and I knew that I needed to confess my sins. Maybe, maybe in that moment you felt that sense of relief and that sense of the pain of sin and the pressure of sin come off of you. Well, even David said, I need the joy of my salvation restored because life will wear you down. And maybe you get back into sin or maybe you don't study and pray and you're indifferent about the Lord and you've just kind of lost that, that vigor. You've lost that joy. Well, God is waiting and God is willing to cleanse you and to restore to you that joy of salvation. Now, if you're saved and you're surrendered, then the third point of evaluation is, what are the things that are going to strip me of power peace, and joy. Because we don't constantly, we're human, we don't constantly live in power, peace, and joy. Some believers do, but most believers don't. So what are the things that strip us of that? Well, this text here, now we can turn back to Isaiah 32. This text here in Isaiah chapter 32 will give us a very clear picture, a very clear answer what does the Lord want to do in our lives? God is unfailingly gracious. God is unfailingly generous. And he promises to us as believers that he's ready to pour out blessing on the lives of those who trust him and love him. So how do we experience that? Instead of living in struggle and weakness, how do we live lives that are powerful, that are blessed, that are joyful, that are, that are serving God? How do we live lives of abundance? I don't want to, at the end of my life, look back at the tree and just say, well, I had a couple pieces of fruit here and there. I want the tree of my life, spiritually, to be overflowing with fruit. And so many people, I think, live in, in the contentment, if we can even use that word, in the contentment of just having a couple pieces of fruit and saying, well, praise God, God saved me, and I'm good, and, and I've done a couple things, and, and there's been a little bit of fruit, and I'm going to heaven. No, God wants so much more from that from our lives. He wants the tree of our life to be abundant with fruit, that, that his blessings being poured out and we're receiving that and then utilizing that to minister to people. So how do we experience that? Well, let's see it from the text. And when we read this text, you're going to go, what? But this is a great text of scripture. Isaiah 32. We're going to read 20 verses. You good with that? All right, you have a Bible in front of you, right? If you don't have a Bible, we'll get you one. There's some out on the Welcome Center. If you don't have a Bible while I'm reading, raise your hand and somebody will get you one, okay? Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country. 
like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. No longer will the fool be called noble, or the rogue be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness. To practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord. To keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what's right. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. Transition now into verse 9. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. Within a year and a few days you will be troubled, O complacent daughters, for the vintage is ended and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put sackcloth on your waist. That's a sign of mourning. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Transition into section 3. Until the Spirit is poured out again from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field, and the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation, and in secure dwelling, and in undisturbed resting places, and it will hail when the forest comes down, and the city will be utterly laid low. How blessed will you be, you who sow besides all waters, who let out freely the ox and the donkey. Now, it's kind of a strange passage. But again, there is relevance and application for us even in this passage. As I said when I read, the text divides into three parts. And if you write in your Bible or you take notes, you can kind of notice this. In verses 1 to 9, or excuse me, verses 1 to 8, we have God's promises. God is making promises about, his, about the future for the nation of Israel and Judah. We're going to combine them together and call them Israel because they would become one nation again. So verses 1 to 8, we have God's promises. In verses 9 to 14, we have Israel's problems. So God makes promises about the future, but first they have to deal with their problems. And then the third section from verses 14 to 20 or 15 to 20, can't remember, God says, my spirit is going to be poured out. So there's God's promise for the future, there's Israel's promise now, and then there's God's promise again to pour out His Spirit. He's telling them in advance, you're going to have a wonderful future. It's a long way off, farther than you can imagine. But you will have a wonderful future, but until that wonderful future, we have to deal with the problems that you have. And within a year and a couple days, there's going to be trouble, and there's going to be punishment because of what you've done. God wants us and them to see the direct correlation between what we do and what we experience. What we do and what we experience. But he says it doesn't have to be this way. I'm gracious and I'm compassionate. And eventually I'm going to bless them. But before then there's going to be a time of difficulty and discipline. 
you know, when we go through crisis, when we go through difficulty, we have to be able to discern what type of discipline it is and why it's happened. There are two types of discipline. The first type of discipline is the trying of our faith. James 1 tells us that that's from the Lord. And it's designed to test the depth of our trust in Him and to take us deeper into trust, to teach us patience and endurance and to ultimately make us more complete like Christ. So there are times as a believer where God is going to try your faith and test your faith and refine you and put you to the challenge and, and, and take us through a time of crisis that seems almost unbearable. But the point of that is to refine, shape, mold, and make us more like Christ so that we learn how to trust, learn how to be patient, learn how to endure, and learn how to follow the Lord. That's the trying of our faith. The second type of discipline is the discipline of our rebellion. And this is different than the trying of our faith because the trying of our faith is designed to strengthen us. The discipline of our rebellion is to deal with our resistance and our refusal to trust. And when God takes us through discipline, again, it's from the Lord. But the point at that point is to try to, uh, to work to convict us and to bring us to repentance so that we'll change. See, God's not going to try your faith if you're away from him. He's going to first do the work of discipline and challenge of who you are because there's a rebellious spirit there. Israel was constantly living in a rebellious spirit. You look at it, you read through the book of Kings, and you read king after king after king. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they built idols, and the people went and worshipped at Samaria, and worshipped at the high places before the Asherah pole, and then another king would come along, and he would do evil again. Israel's constantly living in rebellion. When they're in the wilderness, wandering from Egypt to the promised land, which should have taken about three weeks, but how many years did it take? Forty, right? Three-week journey took 40 years. Why? Because as soon as they got out of Egypt, they stopped trusting. Oh, no, we're trapped at the Red Sea. God gets them through. Oh, no, we don't have anything to eat or drink. God provides food, bread every morning, and quail flying through, and water from rocks. And Israel says, oh, no, we should have gone back to Egypt. We liked it better there. There were beautiful buffets and lavish parties, even though they had no straw for bricks and were getting beaten in the hot sun. But, but they wanted to go back. And then when Israel... Israel is given the law. They say, we don't want the law. We don't want God. Let's build a golden calf. And God strikes them down. And then he says to Moses, lead them. And the people say, we don't want Moses and Aaron. We want to go to somebody else. On and on and on again. Constant rebellion. Constant refusal to trust. It's not that they were not self-aware. They just didn't care. So God talks about the discipline here in this middle section, but he also bookends the problem by talking about how things can and will be when they're right. If you look quickly at verses 1 to 8, i got to go fast here. We see the picture of a king who will reign righteously. That's the phrase in the future. Now Isaiah may be talking about King Hezekiah, who was one of four kings that was empowered during the time that Isaiah served the Lord. 
King Hezekiah was a good king. He's one, uh, really the last good king of Judah. He brought about reforms and, and tried to bring the nation back to the Lord. So Isaiah may be talking about him, but, but even more so, when you look at verses 3 and 4, you see that Isaiah is giving an advanced picture of Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah, the Savior who will come, and everything will be different. And notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. There will be physical restoration. The blind will see, and the deaf will hear, and, and confused minds will discern, and those who stutter will speak clearly. Where do we see that? We see that all throughout the Gospels, where Jesus goes around doing good and healing people and making the blind to see and the deaf to hear, and those who are, who are filled with spirits to be clear-minded, and those who, who just had no chance, who were, who were difficult, he made all that happen. So Isaiah is giving an advanced picture in verses 3 and 4 of the physical restoration that God will bring. But it's also a spiritual restoration. There's two. There's the physical that Jesus would do, and then there's the spiritual that would happen when the Holy Spirit came. And we see this, that people would have visions. They would communicate God's truth. And those who heard the gospel now preached would hear it and receive it with their hearts. And people would be able to discern spiritual things. And the Holy Spirit would open the mouths of those who couldn't speak clearly before. All of that is fulfilled in Acts. Where ordinary men are empowered by the Holy... And women are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And they do miracles and they preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit moves in such a way that thousands of people are saved. And the church is added to daily. So Isaiah is not just talking about Hezekiah. Yeah, we got one more good king that's coming, and then after that we're toast, but, but there's a good king coming. He is giving here, as he does all throughout this book, an advanced picture that God is coming, Jesus is coming, Messiah will come, and not only will he physically hear people, but he will spiritually heal people, and as he spiritually heals people, the Holy Spirit will then come and empower men and women of God to do amazing things for the Lord. Don't you, don't you ever, don't you long to be part of that type of work of the Lord? I'm not talking about church growth, and I'm not talking about programs. I'm talking about the organic, unplanned, obvious outpouring of God's Spirit, so men and women of God are being utilized and abandoned for the Lord, and people's lives are being changed radically. How many people would like to see that happen? Because that's not happening. That's not happening in the American church. And the question then becomes, why doesn't it? We're not seeing that type of prevailing ministry in 2016. There are churches where it's happening, but it's few and far between. And it's not because the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way anymore. He's the same God, the same Savior, the same Holy Spirit that's in Isaiah 32, that's in Acts 2, and that is now in 2016. So why doesn't it happen? Well, there are going to be people that say God doesn't work that way anymore, that that's exclusive to the New Testament, and that, and that God did that to verify Christ and to validate the disciples, but it doesn't happen e anymore. And you know what? I can't say that. I don't believe we can say, well, the Holy Spirit just doesn't do that anymore because he's the same spirit. It's a nice theory, and it makes a lot of sense, and maybe it's true in part, but I can't find a single verse in my Bible where it says God stopped working that way. Point to me the verse. 
where it says, well, God just doesn't do that anymore. In fact, it's interesting because if you look back at verse 32, uh, chapter 32, this prophecy that was made about 4,000 years ago refers in verse 15, look at that, that, that the Spirit will be poured out on high, and that's the same Holy Spirit who indwells us in salvation and changes our nature and renews our minds and convicts and teaches and empowers and fills us. So why isn't that happening? If it was prophesied and it was proven, why isn't it happening now? Well, I think we need to understand what will limit this from happening. And there are a lot of reasons. But there's one word that Isaiah uses three times in verses 9 to 11 that should really get our attention. It's the word complacent. Complacent. The word in the Hebrew means careless. The biblical and historical context here tells us that these were people who were proud and self-indulgent and desired uh, pleasure and luxury, and that caused their hearts to be calloused, and it caused their priorities to become evil. Now, that's not something that happens overnight. That's a slippery slope caused by one compromise after another and one selfish thought or action that we allow then to turn into a habit until we're so far away from the Lord that we're not really sure how to get back and honestly, we're not sure we even want to. That was the pattern with Israel and the Lord says, I'm going to discipline it. Because spiritually and physically, thorns and briars, you see this here in the middle of the text, Thorns and briars had come up. It's a picture of Genesis 3 after the fall. And he says, the palace has been abandoned, so there's no direction. The watchtowers have become caves. There's no protection. Everything is loose and wandering around. There's there's no purpose. Now, I believe that describes the times we're living in now. And I think the spiritual complacency and callousness not only describes our culture, that's a given. We know that's going to be true. But I think what disturbs me is it increasingly describes the church of Jesus Christ. I was walking this week early after everybody went to school and I had some time before I went to work and I I went out. It was a nice day finally and the sun was shining. Praise the Lord for the sunshine, right? Oh man, it put me in such a better mood. The gray days just get you after five months, right? So I was out, and I thought, I'm going to go get some exercise because I need to lose some weight, and I need some vitamin D. I think that's the right one, right? Vitamin D from the sun? Good. And I'm walking and praying and thinking and thinking about this morning. And all of a sudden, the Lord really impressed upon my heart three cultural trends. And these three cultural trends are so prevalent right now. And the problem is that the church has done so little to even speak out against them, let alone to challenge and oppose them. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write these three things down. These are the three cultural trends that are grabbing us right now. Trend number one is subjective truth. Subjective truth. Lying is not only approved, it's now a strategy. How do I know that's true? Well, there was an article in the New York Post this week, which is a secular, as secular a newspaper as you can get if you've ever been to New York and you've ever read the Post. The Post has no holiness in it. 
And there was a writer, I think her name was Maureen Callahan, and the title of her article was, Everything Today is a Lie. And the thesis of the article was that celebrities are intentionally lying as publicity stunts to draw attention and to increase business and to advance agendas. I won't tell you the names because I don't want to give them any credit or any glory. But, but it's out there. And, and celebrities are increasingly being deceptive with kind of a wink and a smile to say, well, we're going to fool you, and by doing that, we're going to sell more things. And that's not necessarily new, but the point that the writer made was there's no longer any shame about it. In fact, she concluded, instead, this is something people are going to need to learn to master in order to manipulate. That our culture now has come to the place where lying is not a shameful thing. It's not even looked down on just kind of lightly. Now it is a strategy. Now it's intentional in order to manipulate people. So there's no truth. Reality is whatever you make it and whatever you feel. So the thought of a God who has an exclusive on the truth and calls us to live by his word is, is unacceptable and it's outlandish. How dare anybody tell me what's right? Because truth is what I want it to be. Now our only response to that is to stay strong in the word and defend the word of God and stand by our convictions. Because once this happens and once truth is gone, there is no turning back. So trend number one is subjective truth. Trend number two is an outgrowth of this because without truth, there's widespread confusion. Without truth, there is widespread confusion. Because of number one, there's no sense of moral or, or uh, intellectual grounding, feelings of reality. And because things always go to the lowest point, right, there's a price for this. If this is not stopped, and I don't believe it will be unless the church really stands up and tries to stop it, but it may be too late. If that's not stopped, ultimately it will go to its extremist expression, which is lawlessness and anarchy. Because if there's no truth, then there's no law. And if there's no law and everything's guided by my feelings, then you can't tell me what's right and what's wrong. You can't hold me to a standard of right and wrong. It is what I feel, and what I feel is up to me, and there's no standard. And eventually, and this is already happening in our politics, eventually there will be no rules, no regulations, and everything will be absolute lawlessness. As soon as the church is removed to heaven, just read Revelation, you'll see what's going to happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. And the devil's setting the stage now so it will just ease into that. There's no loyalty. There's no faithfulness. Crime is high. Divorce is high. Families are splitting up. There's disrespect among children. There's all kinds of rebellion within the church. There's even a lack of loyalty. People are just moving around from church to church until they find whatever entertains them and satisfies them or has all the things to keep them happy. We have a, a serious case of spiritual ADD. And it's because there's confusion. And pastors are even on edge. I talk to them. Pastors are on edge because we're all scared of losing people. Which highlights trend number three. And this is the one that really grabbed me. Trend number three is microaggression. I'd never heard the phrase till this week. Microaggression. You know what microaggression is? It's the increasing fact 
that we are unreasonably sensitive about anything that might possibly offend us or hurt our feelings or wound our self-worth. So kids can't be corrected because we don't want to wound little Johnny and Susie's feelings. And we're not going to keep score when we play ball because we don't want anybody to lose and everybody's going to get a participation trophy and there are no winners and no losers because we don't want anybody walking away feeling bad about themselves. And you can use whatever bathroom you want because we don't want to limit anybody because you feel a certain way today and that's good, so you just do what you need to do. It's microaggression. Now, we may say, well, you know, it's just a phase. No, this has long-term implications. Because how are we going to preach the gospel which says that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and need God's grace if nobody can do anything wrong? How are you as a parent in a store going to be able to teach and, and correct your child because somebody will say, you can't do that, that's going to hurt your child's feeling, and they'll call social services on you. You don't believe me? Look at the news. We've become so sensitive, and so I can't do anything, and, 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 and just, I just, you, you can't hurt my feelings. Listen, I'm not talking about being mean. That's not the grace of God. I'm talking about you can't say anything is wrong anymore, and if that happens, how do we preach the gospel? How do people get called to conviction? I am a sinner. I'll stand before you now this morning and tell you, I am a sinner. I have offended God tens and hundreds of thousands of times. And I'm worthless. I have no right to God. But Jesus Christ is Savior. But how can I understand Jesus Christ is Savior unless I understand that I'm a sinner? Now, we look at those trends and we go, well, that's depressing. Thank you, Paul, for bringing me down this morning. I was in a good mood. But here's the truth. Jesus has already defeated sin. And God is so much stronger than all of this. And he's given us victory and he's declared us to be overcomers and more than conquerors through Christ. So we don't have to be overwhelmed. We have to now start to look to him and say, God, how do you want to work in our midst? Because you're ready. And that's where... Let's move quickly. Uh-oh, I'm out of time. That's where we get to verses 15 to 21. Because the Lord makes a promise here that is fulfilled in Acts 2. And now is the power in our lives. Once the Spirit is poured out, we can experience the fruit of righteousness. So go back to the two questions. Are you saved? Because if you are, you're declared righteous and you're given a righteous nature. Are you surrendered? Because if you are, righteousness will fill you and be obvious in your life. So again, is there the fruit of righteousness in your life? Are you quenching the spirit, which means to extinguish and stifle him? Or are you filled with him? Because when we're filled with the spirit, the Lord pours out his grace and blesses us beyond measure. Look at how we see that back in the text. It says, when the Spirit's poured out from on high, the wilderness becomes fertile. The wilderness is barren, it's dry, there's no water, there's no trees. It's a spiritual picture of the testing of our faith. But it says that when the Spirit is poured out, the wilderness becomes fertile. And it's like a forest, it's so abundant, because that's how God works. And it says that justice and righteousness will abide. I think one of the most frustrating things about our culture is the helpless feeling 
of injustice. Christians can't get a word in edgewise and morality is spinning out of control and we can see the end game and we feel almost powerless to do anything. But there's one thing we can do. We can call on the Lord to intervene. Because when the Spirit is poured out, instead of being ignored or stifled, there's justice. Listen, we can be uptight about Target and we can raise a stink and refuse to go there. I haven't walked in a Target since they did that. But this is far bigger than Target. Have we begged the Lord to intervene? Have we begged the Lord to change hearts and corporate policies? Because if we just post on Facebook that we're not going back to Target, we're just voices without impact. But when we raise our voices to the Lord, what happens? He works. He works. We're going to have a prayer meeting a week from Wednesday on June 1st. This room should be packed. Because we can call on the Lord and say, Lord, we want you to intervene. They've already lost billions of dollars in revenue. Listen, at some point, they're going to look at the bottom line and go, we made a mistake. Let's pray for God to break through. Look at the last thought. When the Spirit is poured out, the work of righteousness is peace, quietness, and confidence. Do you possess those today? Is your heart and mind filled to overflowing with peace and quietness and confidence? Are you disturbed and disquieted and disheartened and defeated? The Bible says that the Lord gives his people peace even in the midst of conflict. And he gives us security in the sense of being undisturbed. Those are words that never describe living in sin. Now, now this is not just some utopian idea, a pipe dream that would be nice, but it's not reality. This is the promise of God. Let me say it again. This is the promise of God to his people. This is what God wants to do in our lives now. And whether we believe that is a question of whether we really understand the power of the Lord. Because like we said earlier, nothing says that God can't and doesn't work the way he did in Acts. He's the same spirit. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we're given his power to be bold and confident and courageous for Christ. We're told that Elijah was a man just like us. So if Elijah's a man just like Paul Rhodes, what a statement that is. I'm not even going there. But let's say that that's true because God said it, so it has to be true, right? If Elijah's a man just like Paul Rhodes, and Elijah prayed to God, and fire came down from heaven, and he called people to choose sides, choose this day who you're going to serve, God or Baal, and people got saved, and he ministered to them that are hurting, then doesn't it stand to reason that God has equipped me with the same power and the same spirit? You go, Paul, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. I can't come to this church anymore because you're talking mystical, crazy stuff. No, I'm not. It's the same power and the same spirit. Does that mean I'm going to call it on fire from heaven? Probably not. But it does mean that God has empowered you and me with strength and power and confidence. And maybe we don't talk about miracles. and Maybe we don't talk about ministry. But look back at verses 17 and 18 and we're going to pray. 
what God tells us is that we can find comfort and strength because in these weird, uncertain times we live in, when everything seems upside down and we're unsettled, God says, you can have peace. I am willing and able not only to bless you, but to bless you abundantly. I love that phrase in verse 20. How blessed will you be? Oh, Paul Rhodes, how blessed will you be this week because of the presence and the power of God? Oh, believer, how blessed you'll be when you trust in Him and walk with Him and God will move and He'll give you peace and power and confidence and quietness and strength. So the question is, are you living inside of His ideal or are you way out here on the outside? Because Israel constantly lived on the outside, and they're still recovering. God still says, I'm going to have to discipline you again before I get to the fulfillment of my promise in Isaiah 32. But church, you can live there right now. And it says in verse 2, I'll be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm and streams of water in a dry country and the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Oh, church, I need that this morning. We need to be asking the Lord to do that in our lives and then we need to get right in the center of His will and not deviate left or right, staying right on that path so God will work in amazing, abundant ways. We need Him more than we ever have before.